Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We are in the middle of a discussion concerning substance use, or excuse me, substance-related and addictive disorders. In particular, we're talking about opioid-related disorders, which would include then opioid misuse. The reason we're talking about such a subject uh, is that opiates, heroin specifically, is one of the most addictive and most abused substances in the United States of America. Based on a uh, recent survey of uh, 19.7 million people, it's a lot of folks, uh, aged 12 years or older in 2017, number one on the list again was heroin, number two cocaine, number three nicotine, and then to round out the top 10 was marijuana. We've also stated statistically that 85% of all peoples who have an addictive disorder relapse within the first year. We've talked about uh, the diagnostic criterion up to this point. Uh, we've discussed the diagnostic criterion uh, based in the or established in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, we've also taken a look at uh, particularly what it is to uh, have not only uh, symptoms, uh, but examples of those symptoms, we've made every effort and attempt to not only inform those that might be abusing or misusing a substance like an opiate, but also the family members. And the purpose of that would be to uh, assist folks in getting help, uh, becoming aware, knowing what it is to have a drug addiction, uh, as if that may be complicated to some, uh, to others it's pretty obvious. Uh, and uh, as much as our last program discussed anything, we had also moved into the American Society of Addiction Medicine's uh, criterion for treatment uh, for a good outcome, good effect, most successful outcome, most successful effect. You not only have to have a good diagnosis, but you have to have uh, a solid, sound basis for treatment, which includes placement. Not everybody is at the same stage in their uh, diagnosed condition uh, of opiate use, misuse, uh, and uh, based on what diagnostic criterion is uh, there and then what trouble, and that's how we've identified it, uh, not only does the uh, substance get you in trouble, uh, difficulty socially, occupationally, financially, uh, but you can't stop it. That's the essential basis of not only abuse and dependence, but as it all rolls into, again, the APA, American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic System. So, going back to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, we started with a, a multi-dimensional model uh, that begins with uh, dimension one and goes all the way through dimension six. Uh, there are corresponding levels of care uh, that go along with that. And uh, last session, uh, last session, last program or podcast here on Word, we began to discuss what those actually look like, uh, beginning with uh, level 0.5, which is early intervention, and we discussed also outpatient treatment. So when you make a diagnosis, though, you're going to look at, again, several factors, uh, those being 
what it is to uh, have intoxication or at least what extent or degree of intoxication is identified. Uh, we're going to look at some of the biomedical conditions that go along with that in the ASAM uh, reference uh, context uh, of making appropriate treatment uh, recommendations. We're also going to look at emotional behavioral difficulties. Uh, we'll look at readiness to change, the dimension of readiness to change, uh, also relapse continued use, uh, whether or not the person has relapsed previously or established a pattern of continued use. And we're going to look at also as a final dimension uh, what type of actual living environment or social supports are available. And uh, as much as, again, we've taken a look at early intervention, uh, we've determined that there is, when it is appropriate that the person go into early intervention, uh, there's really a very minimal withdrawal potential. Maybe it's just uh, a random, uh, unfortunate circumstance. I don't guess any of it. We did kind of discount that last uh, podcast, that there's probably no such thing as uh, random, especially if on down the road, as uh, it is progressive, any addiction uh, disorder, diagnosis of addiction, as with a disease model, there's a certain dimension of prediction, prediction, uh, a continuation of that, um, uh, where there is uh, ongoing worsening of symptoms over a period of time. Progression, that's the word I'm trying to get to. And so if you're in my office or you've gone to somebody's office or you've gotten into some aspect of trouble, uh, it's automatically presumed it's abuse. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there's great potential for, as with dependence, another episode. But after the second episode, as with, again, that notion of progression and that dimension, uh, additional dimension of progression uh, that goes along with any disease, you start out, it's mild on the front end, and uh, if uh, left untreated or the treatments aren't, aren't appropriate or successful, then it gets worse and worse over time, uh, you're going to have a second episode. And when a second episode comes up, then it moves uh, more beyond just a abuse, uh, or, or again, I used the word random earlier, uh, just a situation or circumstantial, um, not yet a pattern, a single incident, an isolated incident. You're going to move from that to a series of incidences, which then does indeed not only establish a pattern, but what I'm trying to say is it's going to get worse every time that incident occurs. But again, with point five level of care, American Society of Addiction Medicine, early intervention, we're not anticipating that. Uh, there are also very few biomedical conditions. Uh, it's not really gone to the point where there's any sort of physiological dependence. It's not altered too much. The homeostatic response, the hedonic system, again, that regulatory system that manages all our primary drives, that keeps us alive and functioning at an optimal level. There may or may not be emotional or behavioral problems. Uh, certainly, if you get in trouble with the law because you're using or misusing a certain substance that's illicit or illegal, even if it's a singular event, that's probably going to create some emotional difficulty or at least an emotional reaction. But we'd probably put that in the category of mild. As much as a readiness to change, 
The idea is that if it is even at that point something that, that isn't um, subject to some degree of denial, which once more, that's a psychological sort of phenomenon or certainly psychological term, denial pretty much means, though, that the person is already uh, demonstrating an unwillingness to accept that the incident or the use of the disorder is problematic. No, it's not. Uh, with that, it's not my fault. And of course, you can't really you can't really help somebody until they're ready to accept that they have some say in it or there's some responsibility that they have to fix it. Uh, at an early intervention stage, we don't know exactly whether it's going to become a big problem. Uh, so this idea of readiness for change, we're going to assume, presume, that the person's going to be open, that, oh, wow, I didn't think this could happen, as an example, and, okay, educate me, inform me, let me know about it, which is kind of, again, what we're doing on Word as with this subject or the study of this subject in general. Uh, it's all informative. It's educational. Uh, that would be in that same sort of a way as, as within, again, the medical model, primary care. Uh, if you can prevent it, uh, great. And that's what this is about. If you can educate somebody before someone, before they get to a point of having more of a problem, again, progression of the disease or disorder, uh, known as substance misuse or dependence or addiction, then you're going to have a better chance at recovery. Uh, and with that, then hopefully one intervention is going to mitigate that. Or if it requires further uh, attention or investment, it's just going to all be along the lines, well, you shouldn't do that. If you're going to, we'll use alcohol. Though it's not an opiate, it's a good example of addiction. If you're going to drink, don't drive. If you're going to drive, then make sure you don't drink more than is necessary or more than would be then uh, necessary to qualify you as under a DUI, drunk. Uh, those are pretty, again, common sense sort of points, but that's the problem. Uh, when you use a substance, it does alter your ability to think rationally and reasoned. And with that denial, you could get to the place where you just really don't want to admit it, don't want to see it, and uh, then in your refusal to accept it, your responsibility, your culpability, your uh, obligation uh, to try to fix it because it is not a good thing. How do we know that? It's gotten you into trouble. Then it's going to continue. But again, at point five level of care, ASAM level of care, uh, we're going to accept that it may be a singular incident, and you're going to be pretty open to that. As far as uh, dimension five, where there's any relapse potential or any uh, potential for continued use, there may be, again, some lack of awareness. There also may be some maladaptive dimension of coping that goes along with it. Well, again, I was stressed out. I needed something to relax. I think we used a, a very similar example to this in the last podcast. So I asked a family member. They said, oh, I've got the thing for you. My doctor prescribes me this. Why don't you try one of them? Oh, well, we didn't realize that the Xanax was unfortunately an illicit substance if it's not prescribed to you. 
And with that, if you, for whatever reason, are reasonable suspension, uh, suspension, suspension, suspicion tested uh, on your job, uh, maybe you're pulled over. Maybe it was a stronger Xanax than you might have anticipated, or the reaction to it was more than what your family member had, uh, because Xanax is, again, a controlled substance. They may have developed a tolerance to it. So you took it, and it made you intoxicated, whereas when they take it, they've developed a tolerance and don't, does not have, do not have that same, it does not have that same effect on them. They do not have those same sort of symptoms that you might have of intoxication. But for you, it got you pulled over, and when they decided that they were going to do some sort of a drug test on you, or at work, when somebody said, hey, you don't look like you're all put together, have you been using something? No. Well, when they do the, again, reasonable suspicion test, it's going to come back with a a benzodiazepine in your system. You're going to get in trouble. You may need to realize, whoa, I shouldn't take benzos to feel better unless they're prescribed for me. Because only when a doctor prescribes them am I assured that I'm going to be able to function properly on them. And if I can't, then the doctor is going to warn me of the side effects so that I will make, again, a better decision. Oh, I'm going to take this. The doc says I should probably not go to work or drive until I'm sure of the effect it's going to have on me. I should probably take it on a Sunday if I don't work Sundays or in the evening But if you don't understand that, then you might become somewhat inclined to use that as a coping skill, which is not a good thing. And moreover, just using any substance to feel relaxed, if you do it to an extreme, if it's not just situationally or circumstantially driven or based, and the situation circumstance changes, you don't need it any longer, it too can then become a habit a part of your personality. Well, I'm feeling a little stressed. Oh, this thing worked in the past. Let me do it again. What we try to do is help folks to realize that's how a maladaptive pattern begins, although those are all still controlled variables for the person who's not dependent upon a subject, a subject substance, either psychologically or physiologically. They still have a choice It's better to become aware of that, again, in a primary care sort of mode, prevention sort of mode, than to wait until it becomes secondary care. And in some ways, you could argue it's already secondary care because you're, again, seeing a specialist, someone to treat what otherwise has become a problem. But certainly, you don't want it to become part of who you are or how you cope with life, lest then it becomes part of the complex the psychological and the physiological dimensions, again, that lead to a pattern of not only abuse, repeated abuse, but in that, every time you abuse it, you run the risk of becoming psychologically and physically dependent upon it. We also do an assessment, uh, or at least with the ASAM criterion, the reference, you do an assessment of what social supports or support system is in place. Uh, So that, again, if there is a bit of a concern, at least if there's good supports, if the whole family is aware, if particularly the family member who gave you the Xanax becomes aware that this was not a good idea, then hopefully that support system is going to encourage not doing that again in the future. 
So it doesn't really require a lot of other supports outside of the immediate family or any higher, again, level of care or degree of intervention to get the uh, right outcome or the desired result, which would be don't do that if it's going to cause you trouble. Again, trouble measured in terms of financial, social, health, occupational, uh, get you in trouble with the law sort of problems. So looking at, again, that outpatient or early intervention, not really the outpatient, but moving into the outpatient level two, but staying a little bit uh, leaning more toward the early intervention, I'm going to go over again these dimensions in a little bit of a different way, same dimensions, one, two, three, four, five, and six, just going to elaborate uh, in a little bit of a different reference so that you'll get a little more backdrop, context to what we're looking for. On a dimension one or dimension one level, the patient has no signs or symptoms of withdrawal or his or her withdrawal needs can be safely managed in a level one setting. See withdrawal management chapters or approaches uh, based on ASAM criterion, uh, which I don't know that we're going to necessarily get into that on the podcast, uh, but... If there is a need for withdrawal or if there's some sort of an acute withdrawal reaction dependent upon the substance, there may be some medical intervention. But again, we're presuming that the, that the situation it may have a degree of an intoxication, but it's, again, acute, not chronic. Uh, a chronic, again, would suggest that it requires a little higher level of care, a little bit more than just simply prevention uh, or primary care. Uh, on dimension two, the biomedical conditions and complications. Uh, the patient's status in dimension two is characterized by biomedical conditions and problems. If any, they are sufficiently stable to permit participation in, again, a le least restrictive sort of context. Uh, early intervention, psychoeducation. As we might move across again, uh, these are up these different levels to point five to level one to level uh, 2, 2.1, uh, actually, uh, we're going to see a greater and greater sort of uh, need for and then response of intervention. Uh, the patient status in dimension 3 is characterized by or and the patient has no symptoms of co-occurring mental disorder or any symptoms of are mild uh, they are stable, fully related to a substance misuse, uh, and if it becomes an addictive disorder, it's more, again, along the lines, uh, particularly with the uh, point five early intervention, of no um, real predictive sort of dimension that they're going to, or at least a predictive element that they're going to do it again as it, again, moves further along the progression of disorder and disease, higher level of care, there's going to be more of that. Uh, but we're going to look at all the programs, so it can range from none to greater. But that's really what that biomedical aspect is, or excuse me, that dimension three, the emotional, behavioral, and cognitive conditions. Uh, emotional, again, is pretty obvious. Uh, emotional reactions... Uh, mood swings, anxiety, those kind of things. We've described them on the podcast before, psycho, psychomotor sort of features. Behavioral, of course, would be all the things that go into either the problems or as we're trying to get the substance, 
to avoid the feelings, the emotions, uh, the person is engaging in pretty unhealthy, maladaptive sort of coping strategies again. But the patient's psychiatric symptoms in Dimension 3, anxiety, guilt, uh, their thoughts, again, denial would be a disordered way of thinking. Uh, Denial is a cognition, uh, is a thought, uh, put in the category of cognitions, thoughts. But really, in psychological terms, we call those precognitions, which basically means that you know them, before you're really aware of them, or as awareness goes, you've chosen to deny them before they last or stay very long in a conscious sort of context, lest you would have to admit to them. So they are thoughts. They're just filtered out as soon as they come to awareness so that you don't really have to then uh, worry or feel that extra emotion of guilt or anxiety by having to attend to them. Because why? You've just put them completely out of your mind. Uh, What's important, though, is to all of this is that is with intention. You can't hide it unless you know it's there. And if you should choose to hide it, you're not really free of responsibility. How come? Because it takes an awareness to hide it. And if you're aware, then, as I said earlier, it puts you in a position of responsibility and or culpability. You're responsible not only to change it, but why should you change it? Because you're responsible for what we know when you're intoxicated and you uh, (laughs) unfortunately get into trouble are bad outcomes. Uh, Again, along those lines of social, financial, occupational, health, legal concerns, those type of problems. So you're beginning to have disordered thinking. Again, it can be mild, but it can also move to something more severe, such as fluctuations in mood, uh, destabilization of emotions and mood. You can have substance-induced depression. Uh, You can have difficulties with uh, other what we call comorbid or co-concurrent or co-occurrent sort of conditions, uh, meaning that, yes, you can have a substance use or abuse or dependent sort of disorder, related disorder, but you can also have another psychological uh, condition or disorder, psychiatric disorder, uh, such as a mood disorder, such as depression, or an anxiety disorder. Uh, or even some psychotic disorder that is put in combination with the substance, either intensified or worsened. We call that potentiation. One makes the other worse. It either amplifies or contributes in a sort of similar manner or fashion toward the end of a similar problem worse. It worsens the problem. The patient's mental status uh, can preclude or include their ability to understand the information that we're presenting, which, again, is more than simply, I don't want to understand it, as with denial. It can actually mean the brain becomes so disordered or dysfunctional in terms of cognition, uh, processing, 
giving some sort of reasoning applied, rationality applied, <laughs> like the idea of common sense even applied. It can so disorder or disrupt the normal higher cortical functions of reasoning and rationality to the extent or degree that a person is incapable of understanding. The uh, brain, the axons and dendrites of the nerve cells in the brain are so disrupted by the substance that they do not make sense. They cannot come together in a way that gives us, in some, again, thought orientation, an understanding or appreciation. And really, understanding and appreciation is cognition, its thoughts, its paradigms, its ways of interpreting reality. Yes, it's all physiologically based, but it captures mental images, it captures language, the ability to communicate, the ability to problem solve, the ability to apply abstract thought to our reasoning and rationality, to come to good conclusions, putting A and B together, A plus B equals C, which again, in terms of resolving substance abuse problems, if I use a substance, A, then this is going to be the substance's consequence. Me, A, using a substance, which is B equals C, a bad outcome. It creates problems for me, difficulties for me. But if you can't put that together and you can't understand it, more than simply not wanting to because your brain has become either because of some other existing, pre-existing sort of mental disorder or just simply because the substance itself disrupts the biochemistry sufficient to mess up or interfere with even good basic sort of reasoning exercises, you're not going to understand and you're not going to cooperate or participate or be available to cooperate or participate. Again, that's why it's important to look at when we talk about treatment and placement and treatment, all these different dimensions because if we don't consider these things, we might put somebody in the wrong level of care or as we might measure the disruption because of, again, these different levels as they correspond to the, again, diagnose, diagnosis or the diagnostic criterion, the APA plus the ASAM then translates to a higher probability of not only appropriate diagnosis and treatment, but good outcome. But we need to make a thorough assessment. And you need somebody who otherwise is qualified, who understands all of this. I'm giving the audience, you, my audience today on the podcast, enough information to get a notion of what this is about. But you're not going to be qualified to make the diagnosis uh, or make treatment recommendations as someone who otherwise has the degree has the training, has the license, the certifications to do such. That's why, again, what I'm sharing with you is not intentioned to make a diagnosis or make treatment recommendations in a generalized sort of way, but to encourage you to go seek help, to bring in a loved one, someone who is a friend, someone you're concerned about. 
even if it's no one that you really feel very significant or strong feelings toward, nonetheless, you're in a position to help them and you want to help them because if you are in a similar position, you want somebody to help you. That's where all of this comes together to suggest call somebody, reach out to somebody, make an appointment, encourage the person who has the problem to make the appointment to get help. Again, the idea is primary care prevention is better than secondary care after something has already manifested itself in terms of symptoms, which is ultimately better than tertiary care, which is when it's been around for a longer period of time as the progression of disorder unfolds, primary is early stages, secondary is in the middle sort of context or stages of the disorder or disease unfolding, but tertiary care is toward the end stages. The disease, the disorder is worsening in terms of symptoms, but it's becoming more and more difficult to treat as it goes across that continuum. Get it when it's early. Get help, that is, it, when it's early, before it becomes a huge problem. If we could treat everything at this point five, early intervention, level of care, prevention, that's what we want. Of course, it's not going to happen. It's not realistic. People, because again of denial, are not going to want to. There's genetic predispositions to addiction too uh, that make it very difficult once it starts to stop it, to arrest it. But if you get the help you need Sooner than later, you've got the best chance at treating it with fewer, if not minimal, complications. It does not have to haunt you for the rest of your life. You do not have to go around self-labeling as, Hi, I'm David. I am an opiate addict to everyone that you're with just so that they're aware, don't give you opiates. I know that's a little overly dramatized, but the point would be you can fix this. There's help. Now, I'm not saying everyone can, and certainly what I am saying is the further you go down that road, there is a point where it is a disease and it takes over. But as long as you have a choice, you can do something about it. Even if it's gotten to the point where the disease has taken over, you can still do much to mitigate that. And that's what intervention is about. But that's also why we look at it in, in these terms. The ASAM criterion for placement or level of care, and particularly the different dimensions that's represented or reflected by that. So as much as we can catch it early on, the better. If we can recognize co-occurring or concurrent sort of conditions, other mental health disorders, that's important because they can, again, in a potentiating sort of way, make things worse. We can also look at that in terms of dimension four or with dimension four as far as, again, a readiness to change. Whether or not there is good motive, whether or not the person is in a place mentally and emotionally where they're ready to accept the responsibility for their choice, for the disorder, usually it requires them to have also accepted culpability, meaning that they've accepted that it has caused trouble, difficulty. But once that happens, 
once they get to a point where they're really willing to, if I might call it this and others do as well, own it. If they can own it, it's my problem, then they're at the beginning, if not well into a, a place of being able to exercise choice to changing it. And that's really what all psychotherapy is about, is that ability to make that change, to own that in a way that you are making a choice to cooperate, which then makes that change. Uh, until that happens, then it's just resistance. <laughs> and there are some folks that are more resistant to treatment than others, and some conditions by their very nature implicitly are more resistant to treatment, biochemically, psychologically. But full cooperation, again, on the part of the patient means that the provider has the best opportunity to really help. So this readiness to change can start with just a willingness to participate, to come in and listen to what the, I'm saying or the sort of thing I'm saying even now to sit down. And you may also be able to do that from the luxury of your own home or car or wherever you might be listening to me now on this podcast. Bring the person in and say, hey, wait a minute. I'd like for you to hear this. I, I think this may be you. So you think you might have an addiction, an opiate addiction. If they're willing to listen and it seems to be getting through, then that's a good sign. They may be willing to admit it and then show or demonstrate a high degree of, of readiness for change. However, there's always, again, based on what we've said even today, the likelihood, depending on how far it's gone, that that's not going to be what's going to happen. They're going to be either in denial, oh, not really me, or again, so far along that they are not able to comprehend or understand or have some other concurrent mental disorder or condition that interferes. But if the patient acknowledges that he or she has a substance-related or other addictive disorders, disorder and wants help, maybe another mental health problem and wants help, that's good. It's good to know that. That is good in terms of telling us where we need to begin as far as treatment's concerned. The patient may, however, be ambivalent, as in, I'm really not interested in this. Or maybe you're making a good point, but I don't think so. So when that's there, of course, you know that's probably going to require a little more effort and work and a little higher level of care. Again, I'll go back to that idea of more restrictive. Higher the levels of care, the more restrictive, the more that has to be done, the less choice, really implicitly it means, the less choice that we can really afford the patient or, in this case, the addict. They're not capable of making a good choice, so the further along it goes in terms of disorder and disease, the worse the consequences, the more the denial, the more that the drug has interfered with their ability to think, to reason, to come to good decision-making. Somebody has to step in, all the way to the extent that they may have to take over if there is a legitimate threat of harm to either that person, as with, from that personal perspective, self, 
or the others that they share their life with. Again, driving under the influence is a danger to other people and may require somebody to step in and say, you can't do that. We're going to take you to jail, or we may take you to a mental hospital, or we may take you to a facility for detoxification uh, to allow you to go the next 24, 48 hours observed so that you get all of this out of your system before we can let you go or release you. Now, at the worst end of it, the patient may not, in this dimension four readiness to change, the patient may not recognize that he or she has a substance-related or other addictive disorder and or mental health problem. And, of course, once more, that's the most restrictive of care then uh, that's required to treat that because they are not in any place to be cooperative. They are not at any place capable of helping. Uh, on the front end, until they get to that point, get past the denial, their brain starts working better because all of this is kind of clearing out of their system, all these substances or substance that they've been using to the point where they've developed such a tolerance until their body gets back to more normal levels of functioning, they can't help you. They pretty much have to be made to do the right thing. They cannot be trusted to take on that decision or that responsibility autonomously or independently. Which takes us to Dimension 5 then, which Dimension 5 speaks to once more relapse prevention, uh, not prevention, well, it is prevention, but potential. Again, in the example of early intervention, point five, ASAM level of care, we've already said we don't see any sort of high probability of relapse. After all, this is most likely a singular incident or event that's brought them in for care. However, with repeated events, then you're going to move from that very, very low level of relapse. And of course, that's what I tried to say on the beginning or at the beginning of the podcast, on the front end of the podcast as well. You really don't know when you see one, uh, someone for a singular event if maybe they do have the genetic predisposition, if maybe this is the beginning of a pattern, you just have to wait for that to unfold. But as it unfolds, it's going to become clearer because they're going to have what? Repeated incidences, which really means on the front end, in approach of a diagnosis, okay, this is more than abuse, it's verging on, if not has crossed the line into a full-fledged dependence or disorder from mild to moderate to severe, as the APA, American Psychiatric Association, might call it. And if it's been diagnosed as severe or moderate, where there is dependence, then you're also going to see relapse. Repeated relapses, which would then be those occasions, events of using again and again and again. And when you add withdrawal, then there's going to be more than just a psychological prompt. Oh, a maladaptive coping pattern, style of coping or pattern of coping with stress. There's going to genuinely be a physiological need for the substance to maintain normalcy on a physiological level, not to mention psychological or psychosocial level. So this idea of relapse can be, again, none, no real 
probability or very low to a more pronounced probability or likelihood, depending on how, again, far they've gone along that continuum that goes from no disorder uh, through that disease model, that is, to that place where it's become more of a disorder and then takes on the, the form of a disease and then, as it progresses, worsens. Interventions, again, correspondingly, have to become more restrictive or include more control. So, in addition to the possibility of low relapse potential, the patient is assessed to achieve or maintain mental health functioning only with support or scheduled therapeutic contact as you go again higher in those levels of care from 0.5 on up. But it can't end up and you move, again, from outpatient to some sort of a inpatient, a partial uh, to some sort of uh, partial hospitalization to an intensive outpatient or with intensive outpatient partial hospitalization to the most severe or the most restrictive, which would be inpatient, which would mean the person doesn't get to go home at night. They have to stay in a hospital. Why? Because, again... They are incapable of refraining from or restraining themselves when it comes to not only the use of a substance, but this, again, relapse. So, again, Dimension 5 speaks to the relapse prevent, uh, potential as well as prevention. If you're going to prevent it, you have to know what the potential is. Now, again, Dimension 6 speaks to the social environment whether there's psychosocial environment, whether there's good social supports, whether there's others who use substances, whether there's a family history, not only speaking in terms of physiological, genetic, sort of encoded um, transmission of potential for the disease or disorder to manifest itself in the genes or genetic coding, but also cultural, really poor coping styles and strategies can be passed down as in learned. Ways of addressing problems can be passed down as in learned. To not be assertive, to be passive, to be reactive, to not face problems, to be codependent and cover up each other's problems, to compensate so that one doesn't have to face not only the consequences of the problems, but also the consequences of those problems. If there is a healthy home environment, obviously, dimension six, a recovery environment, then there's going to be a greater chance that the person can only or would only require and can do with lesser level of care, a lesser level of care, lesser levels of care. If it's a horrible home environment, if there's uh, other substance abuse in the home, if there's other family members who abuse various or varied substances, if you're married to another uh, opiate uh, addict or someone who has a diagnosis of opioid use disorder, that means that going home is not a safe place. It's not a secure place. Those factors that would factor into or those variables would factor into increasing the chances of using Why? Because the person you're living with is using, constantly using. 
the likelihood of you being able to say, if you're an addict, uh, no, I'm not going to, greatly is reduced, if not eliminated, just by proximity, social proximity to that person. Again, if it's something that you grew up with and you're still in your home of origin, or if the people that you use with are family members, it's almost impossible to make that change without also then making a significant change in your recovery environment or your psychosocial environment, which may again necessitate inpatient hospitalization to affect that change. Why do we say that? It wouldn't be because there would not be other addicts on the unit or in the hospital or on the ward, as they used to call it, that you're staying at in the hospital because that's generally how that works. But those individuals have made a commitment. They're surrounded by staff members, providers, various levels of providers who've made an equal commitment There are recovery communities that come into the facility to provide that transitional sort of support from hospitalization back to the community, lesser restrictive from the most restrictive environment, psychosocial environment, treatment environment to the lesser restrictive as you're discharged. Those are all established or put into place. If not in the facility, then at least the person is, while in the facility, supervised as they're taken to these recovery groups, these AA, if it's an alcoholic or alcohol-related problem. In this case, it would be Narcotics Anonymous. There's a lot of other 12-step models or social support models that are out there that aren't AA, NA, recovery communities as well. The individual becomes linked up to them. Uh, so that that transition is not only somewhat seamless, if not seamless, then at least the supervision is seamless. The person has no opportunities moving from the hospital back to the community of uh, getting caught in an in-between sort of moment where they're exposed to or, or they have opportunities to, uh, again, use the illicit substance and then start at square one, uh, ground zero. And, 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 and really, in that way, it's not like you go back and have to go through the progression. It really, what I'm trying to say is square one is you have to go back to where you were when you left. So if your treatment level was inpatient, you're going to go back to square one inpatient. You're going to go back to the earliest days of being in the hospital, And there is, again, some dimension, hopefully, of recovery in the hospital so that you become once more uh, less and less uh, dependent on someone else to make the decision. You make the decision for yourself. Now, again, this may sound overwhelming. It may sound really complicated. But I just wanted to present the overview of how we look at such things and then give you some sort of context so that when we begin to once more run the list of ASAM levels, we'll know when we talk about the different dimensions, one through six, when we talk about moving from intoxication to withdrawal potential to biomedical conditions at two to emotional behavioral problems or severity at three to readiness for change at four to relapse potential uh, or risk to continued use risk at five, 
to also include then sober living environment or psychosocial dimensions when it comes to the support systems that the person has in their natural environment, you'll have a better appreciation of that. But once more, what does this all come back to? That it takes a lot, a lot of help, concerted effort, integrative care to really overcome an opiate use disorder, particularly if it's at that level, according to the American Psychiatric Association, of moving from mild to moderate to severe. And again, what makes that, what qualifies it as mild, moderate, or severe? The degree of symptoms, but also the extent, how many and how bad, how bad the consequences, the trouble it causes, how many incidences of intoxication or abuse of the substance. And if it's to the point where there's already dependency on a physiological level, where there's withdrawal, then implicitly all of those incidences of use really represents either a continued use or if there is any period of time where that has stopped, the use has stopped, they're all then uh, going through lapses or relapses. And maybe that's where we should begin on the next podcast. There is a difference between a lapse and a relapse. So uh, that's probably where we're going to pick up next time. Once more, before we finish today's podcast, I just want to remind all of you in the audience, if you know someone who has these type of problems, and particularly if for whatever reason you yourself have these type of problems, seek professional help and care. I always post a number, uh, an email address so you can reach me. Uh, I'd love to correspond with you if I need to, to help you connect with a provider. These days, there's a lot that can be done through telemedicine, telehealth in the way of providing this assistance. Uh, There is also, as we will get into on the next podcast, this notion, we've talked about it before, medication assist, where that falls as far as level of care uh, and ASAM level of care. It's under outpatient. We'll get into a review of that next time as well. But until then, if you know that you need help, don't delay. Seek help now. But if you should choose not to or if you don't need the help, then I do sincerely want to invite you back to our next podcast where we'll continue this discussion of substance-related disorders, in particular opiate use disorder. Again, just a reminder, this is Dr. David Clay with the podcast or on the podcast word, and thank you again so very much for joining us.